Well, if you have a Bible, would you turn to First Peter? First Peter chapter 5 is where we are. For those of you who are new with us, we've been plugging through the book of First Peter, and so um, we just take what uh, the Lord gives us, and he gives us now First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. And so that's where we're going to be looking today, and uh, then Pastor Hunter will be sharing with us next week on verses uh, 6 through the end. So towards the end of the book today, or the uh, end of the book in this season of TCC, and uh, looking forward to this time uh, together. So as you turn there, what I want to do is I want to read the passage, and then we'll, we'll dive in uh, together. And, you know, in some senses, there's a lot going on in our world that then the Lord brings up a passage to discuss Elders and the church, and as I was looking at it, it it almost felt like over here, like this is life, and we're over here. And then on top of that, I'm a pastor, so it feels like a little more awkward to talk about, you know, pastors. So it's almost like me and the other guys should sit up here, and we should just talk about what the passage says to us, and you guys, you know, do you really even need to be a part? And I think you do. I think you do. Because the setting here is really crucial. you got to understand, Jesus died and rose from the dead about 30 years before Peter is writing this letter. It says in our passage that Peter was a witness to the sufferings of Jesus' death. So he observed the most tragic event in all of human history. His personal angst, he, he remembers those moments and then... The most glorious event in all of human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then the the calling of the people of God. You will be my witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. To only watch the church, and Peter was a part of this, to only watch the church grow inward so that Acts 1.8 had to flip to Acts 8.1 where suffering And pain comes into the church so that the church doesn't stay focused here, but goes out. Goes out, mind you, cross-culturally to areas they were not going before in order that the gospel might go to people who have never heard. And all of this is crucial because God has one plan in the midst of crisis. He's got one plan. That the church of Jesus Christ would be holy and healthy, and fight to treasure him above all things, would love each other so deeply, would be so unified around his glory and his mission that their behavior would stand out as a shocking contrast to the behavior around them. And then together, they are so convinced of the beauty and majesty of Jesus that they are not allowing the distractions of the world to pull them off mission. And so why in the world, in the midst of a suffering church, does he say, now elders, make sure, make sure you're leading in godly ways because the church is God's only plan to get his fame and his goodness to the ends of the earth. And so it makes sense that the leaders must act a certain way, the church must act a certain way, and this is important in the midst of crisis for all of us to hear. And so I invite you in. I invite you into the awkward. Okay? We've all got a lot going on. 
You've come in here probably potentially heavy burdened, mindful of a ton of things, and then I'm going to dive into, now elders, and it's like, okay, good night. Yes, this matters. So what we're going to see is this, instructions for pastors, instructions for the church, and humility for both. Instructions for the pastors, instructions for the church, and humility for both. So let me read the passage, pray, and we'll dive right in. Word of God says this. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. As God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject or submissive to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, elders and church, with humility toward one another. Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Let's pray. Father, our hope in this moment are those beautiful last five words. Because He cares for you. You care for us. These tender words are what bring us to this moment. That you have approached us. You have invaded our lives. You have changed our hearts. And for those who have never surrendered their lives to Jesus in this moment, I ask that you would grip them so mightily with your tender love, so powerfully with your plan of your church that God there would just be this overwhelming sense of desire change and surrender to the tender love of Jesus Christ and so father we just ask that now as we gather that you would instruct us you would bless us with your presence I pray that you would give us understanding But you would protect us from having knowledge that puffs up. But you would fill us with love that builds up. You would make us humble. Trusting you with our very lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we start at the beginning with instructions for pastors. The goal is he's instructing these pastors for for the sustaining of God's people and for the advancement of God's mission. And it begins with what I've called the blessing of withness. Withness. Interesting, he begins with three statements that talk about how Peter is with these people. His withness. Look at it. I exhort, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Okay. This word right here is elder, and then it adds the prefix with on front of it. So I used to live in Minnesota, and when I lived there, one thing that was really funny coming from the south is that um, I had a southern accent, 
and they thought that was hilarious, and they had a northern accent, and I thought that was hilarious, and so we just kept, you know, bantering back and forth. And one thing that is said in Minnesota, which drove me crazy, was, hey, do you want to come with? And I'm waiting for the sentence to finish. Like, a, a preposition needs an object. I'm waiting, you know, do you want to come with me? You know, you know do you want to come with us? You know, it's like, that's how that works. At least, you know, that was my understanding of things. Do you want to come with? But this is how the Greek language worked as well. It was an elder with. With. With you. He's like, I'm an elder with you other elders. I'm with you. And so he's saying, I'm with you as a fellow elder, which means there's a sense of authority he has over these Christians who find themselves scattered throughout Turkey modern-day Turkey, but it's the Roman Empire. So he's a fellow elder with these elders that he's addressing who are shepherding this flock. But he also says that I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, this is to speak first to his authority. Like, I've got authority (laughs) to give you these commands. These commands should be listened to. I'm a witness. I've walked with Jesus. I saw his suffering. I saw his resurrection. You should pay attention. But... What he has just said in verse 13, if you hit the rewind button and you go back up to verse 13, he says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. This phrase, sharing Christ's sufferings, is that you are, in some senses, suffering with Christ. So now he's a fellow elder with, but he's also a fellow sufferer with, because as he's walking this road of leadership or walking this road as a Christian, he is suffering with Christ. So now he's with them as a pastor, he's with them in Christ's sufferings, and then the last phrase, he's also with them all the way to glory. He's with them all the way to glory. We are not only fellow leaders, an earthly family, but we're a glory family. We're going to be with each other at the end, that's what he's saying. And why is this so important? Because he's learned this from Jesus. When Jesus sends out his people, what does he say? Go. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you, and I'm going to be with you. Now, Peter's not Jesus. <laughs> Peter being with me is not as comforting as Jesus being with me, but it is comforting. Someone with flesh and blood says, I'm, I'm with you in this. We're in this together. And so it's only underscoring the example of Jesus when he says, I'm with you. And now Peter's saying, you're not alone, pastors. You're not alone. There's this sense of withness. We're all suffering together. We're all leading together. We're all going to be in glory together. Now i got some words for you. Shepherd and oversee. So if you follow this, if you've read the uh, New Testament some, you need to understand this. Elder is a term that's used as a title of of a... of a position in the church. There's elders and deacons. And those elders have functions. And the functions are summarized in these two phrases. Shepherds and overseers. Okay? So the elders are shepherds. The word shepherd is where we get the word pastor. That's what pastor means, is a shepherd. And then overseer, you might hear some denominations or traditions use the word bishop. They get it from this idea of overseer, but in the New Testament, it's all one thing. The elder is the shepherd, is the bishop or overseer. It's all one position. It's all one role. And so he's saying here in the New Testament, he's saying, I'm with you. Now you've got a role. That is, be a shepherd 
and oversee the flock of God. Very helpful for pastors to hear that this flock, this this people that you've been entrusted to care for is not yours. It's God's. And as a church, that's encouraging for you to realize that your ultimate allegiance as you seek to follow and encourage and be a blessing to the pastors, it's to Jesus because it's his flock. He's the one who's going to get you to the end, not them. Because what you'll see is they're sheep too. Sinful too. So the passage goes on here and it says, not only are the elders not alone, but they should be shepherding and they should be exercising oversight. So the first idea of shepherd, what does a shepherd do? It's the idea of care. Provides. Provided for the sheep to make sure that they were in a place where they could feast. They rescued from enemies. There was a medical role for the shepherd. Would take care of wounds and those kind of things. And so what does this translate into as we're talking about like real people and not like you know, some man with a, a crook and a staff and some woolly animal. You know, it's like none of us really probably are enjoying this kind of comparison because I don't know if you understand this. Like shepherds were not the glorious position, right? Okay. The shepherds were the poor. They were the unglorious. And so we're all being compared to some, you know, it's not what we would have chosen, right? You know, military image, like king and triumphal rulers, but that's not what he chooses. He chooses shepherds and sheep. The sheep, how does this translate? It is the pastor's role is meant to shepherd in that they help the church feed on the word of God. They constantly are pointing back to God and his word and helping the church be self-feeders. We are in such a consumeristic culture of someone has to feed me. Social media is popular because it is feeding you and I constantly. I mean, even when you go on YouTube, it is bizarre how I can look at one video. It can even be a video that somebody sent to me and I watch that video And then the next time I revisit YouTube, videos that are like that video are in my feed. Because they've known what I've liked, and now all of a sudden they just keep slamming it in. They keep slamming it in. So I don't even have to go and look for certain things. Now it just comes to me. We are consumers. Pastors are meant to say, you cannot just be a consumer. You've got to work hard at being a self-feeder. You've got to know God's word. You've got to take it as your responsibility over against even their responsibility to be in God's word, to study God's word, to know God's word, to go there when trial comes. We're people of God's word. And so, yes, the shepherds are meant to point you to the field of grass. The church is meant to feast upon his word. Shepherds are meant to protect from false teaching, to declare what is not true, Declare what is true. Point out sin in their lives and in the lives of others. But that's not just it. It's meant to create a culture of safety under the gospel. A culture where we are not just looking for sin. We're more aware of grace. Because as you stand out and you stare at the beauty of Jesus, you'll see when you... 
you personally aren't lining up with that beauty. But what will happen is you become not afraid. Not afraid to share that with Christ. Not afraid to share that with others. Pastors are meant to nurture. If you know Psalm 23, they lead beside still waters, right? The shepherd who is Jesus, he leads us beside the still waters, restores the soul. Pastors are meant to point out how in the world we can find this sense of stillness before the Lord. Walk in paths of righteousness that is pointing to Christ and equipping. And so, this is something that the passage says here. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. This is crucial as well. I'm not a pastor of every person in downtown, every person in Raleigh, every person in America, every person around the globe. I'm pastor of those that are among me. And specifically, it's those that have been placed underneath our care. It's, it's why we do this thing called the local church and membership. It's because Hebrews 13, listen to this, Hebrews 13 verse 17. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. As pastors, we will give a special account for how we have cared for the people placed underneath our care. I will be held more accountable for how I care for the members of Treasure in Christ Church than I will for other people. And that's weighty. You cannot say that with lightness. It's heavy. But it's a burden that Christ is ultimately meant to carry. But this is why we do membership. It is a declaration that we are together, that there are pastors that are going to care for me and I'm going to support this church together. We're in this together. It's not that one local church is better than another. Some might be. That's not the point. The point is we are going to be faithfully committed to each other underneath a leadership that is accountable to God for our souls. Acts 20, 28 says the same thing. Pay careful attention. This is Paul addressing the elders of the church at Ephesus. Pay careful attention to yourselves, elders, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. The pastors are meant to oversee and to care for the church. The church at Ephesus in that case. And so shepherds were meant to be those who were characterized by care. But not only care, but oversight. Part of their shepherding was to oversee. You know, if a shepherd is watching over a sense of a flock, he is mindful of the surroundings. And there's this guiding that happens with an overseer. So you can think of this general idea of this guiding and guarding that comes. This planning, this directing This kind of vision type sense. What does that look like in our day? Equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Not just doing ministry. And just saying constantly, church, church, don't lose sight. Don't lose sight of what's important. Don't lose sight of love for one another. Stay unified in the midst of such disunifying times. It's these constant declarations and reminders. It's this guidance when the world is saying, go this way. No, go this way. And it's rarely saying, go together. It's like, pick a side and run away from each other. And the church, the pastors are meant to say, no, follow Christ. Come together. Don't lose sight. Don't lose sight of our mission of making disciples. Don't lose sight of our care for the poor and the vulnerable. Don't lose sight 
of your identity as one loved by Christ. Don't lose sight of your mission to proclaim Jesus to lost people. Don't lose sight of that in the midst of your suffering. Shepherd the flock of God. In a few weeks, I'm going to be doing a sermon to try to lay out just with clarity the vision here at TCC. Where are we going? Why are we going there? And As a sense of reminder, some I was shocked. I had not seen the content of the video that was played earlier until this morning. And just so thankful for the humility of those individuals to, to share their story. But I was shocked to hear one at the church for 10 years, one at the church for 14 years. I've only been in the church like 15 half years or something. 2005 is when the church started. And so I'm like, that is just amazing. Just amazing to hear that sense of tenure. But no matter how long you've been, whether it's five days or five years or longer, you can forget why we're in this together. That's the devil's design. To splinter us, to pull us apart, to make us think that our lives are solo silos rather than we're going somewhere together. And that's part of the job of a shepherd, of an overseer. We're going somewhere together. Here's where we're going. Let's do this. Don't lose sight. And so these are the expectations. Now, interestingly, now he says shepherd and oversee and watch out for these three things. He gives a not and a to do. Look at him. He says, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, and not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples. So I've summarized those in three words. Pastors should be doing their ministry gladly, they should do it purely, and they should do it exemplary. Now, he says, gladly, that is, not under compulsion, but willingly. Charles Spurgeon says that pastoral ministry is for him is characterized by anxiousness. It's characterized by a heaviness. And I've said this many times. It's both the privilege and the difficulty of being with people in some of their lowest and most difficult moments. And over time, that can become weary. And as you seek to walk alongside, there can be a sense in everybody's occupation where it just becomes so heavy, you wonder, can we keep going? Can we keep walking forward? So you might make sense why he says, don't do this under compulsion. Now what he's pressing in on is not a sense that this can't be something that you grind out. Like, that's life. Do I get an amen? Many of you are grinding out life. You are not glad to be at your job. Or you are not just loving everything about life right now. That is part of what is addressed in the book of 1 Peter. Like, in this world you will have sufferings. Don't be surprised. Like, this is what happens. But what he's stating for the pastors is, is there overall a general trajectory of heavy burden? Or is there a sense of overall This is a calling from God that I'm glad to be a part of. And if over time, years, it's just constantly, I can't keep going, that's when he's saying you've got to check your calling. You've got to check if God is doing something else. But it's a heavy thing. Not under compulsion, 
but gladly. And then he also says purely, not for greedy gain, but eagerly. And you can get this sense of, don't do it for money. Do it for the love and the fame of Jesus. There's passages in the scriptures that says, you know, uh, an ox is worthy of his, a uh, laborer is le- worthy of his uh, wages. And don't, you know, muzzle an ox. You know, yes, a pastor is being compared to oxen. Don't muzzle an ox while he's treading the grain. There's this sense of supporting those who are doing gospel ministry, and that's fine and good. But the warning is, don't do anything in greed. And that applies to us all. Don't do anything in greed. Do it purely. What's purely mean? It says eagerly. Eagerly for what? Eager for God to be seen, not you. Eager for God to be praised, not your simple provision. It says for Christ's kingdom. Where's your ambition? Is it for Christ or for you? And then finally, not domineering. When anybody's a leader, they can let leadership go to their head, right? And sadly, there's many that come into the church who have experienced that. They've experienced heavy-handedness, what they might even call abuse, from not just any leaders, but from pastors. And it breaks my heart. And it breaks my heart that anybody, myself included, would ever be a part of somebody's pain. But ever be a part of using a position that God has meant as a loving, servant-hearted, humble position to be something when you are domineering. Now don't confuse domineering with passionate and full of conviction. Don't confuse that with, oh, he, he got loud in the pulpit. That's not it. But you know what it's like when someone uses their position to try to dominate and control. No, he says, your life should be an example. An example like Jesus was an example of servant-hearted, humble, walking faithfully with his God. And so, we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful as pastors to not fall into any of these traps. You know what's interesting about leaders is that we can come in very cynical about leaders and be like, they got to prove themselves. Because I've been hurt by all these leaders, so I'm not going to trust them. I'm not going to try to follow any of their leadership because I've just seen too many bad examples. And sadly, if you want to find bad examples, they're all over the place. Others, they put too much trust in leaders. And they raise leaders up high, especially pastors. And yet when pastors are seen to be human, they get weak, they get depressed, they get anxious, they sin, they need a savior. There's a sense that the higher you raise someone, the greater the fall. Let's just be really clear, because this is where the passage goes. There is one savior. One savior. The chief shepherd. You want to know why he says in verse 4? And when the chief shepherd appears? (laughs) Because he wants it to be really clear. Shepherds on this earth need a shepherd. In this sense, we're all sheep. Anybody who is tempted to put their hope in politics 
and yet watched the presidential debate was quickly alleviated that either one of those men are your savior. Do I get an amen? None of them. Politics, your boss at work, your pastors, they are imperfect people, meant to lead imperfect people to see one perfect Savior. That's the aim. That's the aim. And so the chief shepherd is going to lead these pastors. The hope to keep going is the unfading crown of glory at the end. And that's your hope. The unfading crown of glory. Know this. It is not given to pastors because they are better than the church or because they are sinless or because they have greater gifts. No, no, no. You get the unfading crown of glory by faith alone, and that's how you and I both get the unfading crown of glory. We trust in the chief shepherd. And we are all sheep. We are all dumb sheep. We just need to own it, embrace it, not be afraid to say it. We're dumb sheep. We are. And we don't guide ourselves. We need someone else to lead us, lead us beside still waters and satisfy our soul. And so... We all have limits. We all are in need of great grace. And so we have a shepherd, a shepherd who watches us, a shepherd who guides us, a shepherd who guards us. So in this sense, the sermon is for all of us. It's for all of us. And that's why we go on not only instructions for pastors, but instructions for the church. He goes on in verse 5. Likewise, You who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, who are the younger here? The younger here are probably, could be characterized kind of young in maturity. They are either young in age or young in faith. But there is, in all the, as as positive as the term can be, a sense of immaturity. Those who are younger... Make sure you are respectful to the leaders. Now, why would he say something like that? Because, as one commentary puts it, those who are younger in the faith, younger in age, are more likely to be, quote, headstrong and resistant to leadership. My wife and I were driving in the car yesterday, and as we were sitting there talking, it was just, we began to reflect on our younger days, how headstrong we were. How like when we first learned some new theology, man, nobody else knew it. And we knew it. Like this was like our mind was opened and we saw things that we had not been able to see. But friends, when you adopt new things, you rarely adopt them with biblical balance. You're usually pretty extreme. So you, you, you adopt this thing, like you see this new thing and you adopt it and you get it, but you haven't had it, you haven't let it cook long enough. And that's okay. But what Peter is sitting here to say is that when you get this new information, don't be so extreme that you begin to isolate and you begin to 
you know, push people aside thinking you know all of this because it's new to you, but it's not new to the world. If all of a sudden you're learning something that's totally new to everybody else, you should be alarmed. (laughs) We serve a Christ from the beginning of time. He's made himself known in the scriptures. And so what's interesting, I think what's be commended about young faith, young in age, is a sense of passion. A sense of going after things with conviction. And the older you get, the more you can get really relaxed and kind of stuck in how to do life the way you've been doing it. And all of a sudden you get this fresh wind of people coming in who are younger. And they've got passions and convictions. And it stirs your heart. But he's saying, those of you who are younger with passion and conviction, go hard after God, but don't be arrogant in doing so. Be respectful to leadership. Listen, learn still, be convinced that you don't have it all. I was watching this documentary the other day in, on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. And it is interesting. Um, and it's got all of these former executives from all the different social media platforms, you know, Facebook and Twitter and uh, Instagram and all these things. And they're beginning to weigh in on, on why these social media platforms were created but now how they've kind of taken a life of their own. And one of the things that I found fascinating, which I believe has begun to help me understand why things are so polarizing right now, is actually what I've already mentioned. Is that without your efforts, there are algorithms created that when you choose one thing, they will continue to give you on your multiple platforms, things that match what you've been looking for. So what does that do? It makes you believe that everything that you're thinking is what everyone else is thinking, except the crazies, except the extremists. And it creates this sense of, no, this is the only way to think. Because you constantly get this feed that keeps popping in, keeps popping in. This is the way to think. And so you get more and more and more steeped into how you think and you're also being told by this side over here that those side are so evil and so horrible that you can't listen to any of them. Well, guess what? This side's being told the same thing about you. And so all of it, all it does is it just goes, and it's ripping society apart. But the worst part is it's ripping the church apart. Because we're allowing politics or we're allowing certain ideologies that are secondary and tertiary to all of a sudden become primary because our feed is telling us. And all of a sudden what Peter is trying to say here is be careful. We can become so arrogant thinking we know how it's right because we've been fed this stuff. Rather than what does this say? I genuinely am like some of us have become so obsessed with what's going on in our culture. I I'm am encouraging many of you to shut it down and just read your Bible. I want to invite you. If you want to do something to prepare for the election, why don't you commit every single day to pray and to read your Bible? Like, if we're going to get any sense of clarity, it will not come from our feeds. 
It'll come from the Word of God. We can look at these other things. I'm not saying that they're evil. You just need to know what's happening. You're being pulled away from what's central, which is the Scriptures. And no wonder it creates division. So all of us, whether immature in faith, immature in age, not only does he say be respectful to your leaders, but he tells everybody, not just the young in faith or the young in age, but the pastors, the leaders, those who feel like they're mature, be humble. Instructions for the pastors, instructions for the church, humility for both, for everyone. Because, what does it say? The passage says, clothe yourselves. <laughs> clothe yourselves. Like, I'm thankful Every one of you came here in clothes, right? Like you had to get up. It was an intentional gig and you thought about it and you put your clothes on. He's saying with that sense of intentionality, make humility the garments you wear. Like, I don't know if you need to put something in your closet, like right on every coat hanger with a Sharpie. You know, I don't care what you do, but like clothe yourselves with humility. So that when you're putting on your clothing, when you're brushing your... Humility is what we all need. And the sign that you and I struggle with humility is when we're really aware of how prideful everybody else is. We've got to become so convinced that we are in need of a Savior. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Yes. Leaders, be careful not to think of yourself higher than you really are. You're dumb sheep needing to be led by a shepherd. Those in the church, be careful to usurp leadership and to not seek to be one of grace and encouragement. It even says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, a little bit after the passage that I read, make sure that you make your pastor's life a joy because that's no advantage to you if they're miserable. Make your leader's life a joy, it says. That's the scriptures. All of that it requires humility. It does. Patience, love, encouragement. All this requires humility from leaders. From the whole church. What is humility? Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Some of you might be able to quote it. In humility, consider others what? Better than yourself or more significant than yourself. Now, make sure you process this. In humility, consider others more significant than yourself. When you're considering others more significant than yourself, that's the fruit on a tree that shows humility is at the root. Humility considers others more significant than himself. I'm reading a biography by Hudson Taylor called Spiritual Secret. and It's one of the famous ones uh, on his life. And as I've been reading it, just blown away by this man's burden for lost people. This man's burden for lost people. So burdened was he that the people of China would hear the gospel that he was willing to sacrifice all kinds of earthly comforts because he was so stricken in conscience that over a million Chinese individuals were dying every month in his day 
without even hearing of the name of Jesus. Stories being told where he would share Christ with somebody and this person came to faith and he was like, this person that came, this Chinese individual that came to faith said, where, where have you been? How long have you known the gospel of Jesus? And he says, we've known it for hundreds of years. And he's like, well, why haven't you come sooner? My dad was seeking, he said, seeking for the truth about a God and no one was there to tell him about Christ. Hudson Taylor was so burdened that lost people in China would hear of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he was willing to sacrifice life and limb, counting others more significant than himself. I was talking to a dear member of this church recently who shared that he had been burdened for lost people in his family. He ended up counting the number of people in his extended family that didn't know Jesus. 52, he told me. Through tears, he told me how he was seeking to reach out. Try to share Jesus with some of those in his family that have never trusted in Christ. They might have heard, they might not have heard, they might have only seen distorted pictures. But I thought, what a beautiful example of one considering others more significant than himself. A burden, whether it's for the unreached peoples or whether it's for our next-door neighbors, whether it's for our families, this sense of we've got to be reminded this is why we're on planet Earth, to be loved by Christ and to give His love away, to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that He tenderly cares for you and to share that tender care with people who are dying And going to hell without Christ. Consider others more significant than yourself. It doesn't mean refusing to rest. It doesn't mean that you don't enjoy life. Because Philippians chapter 2 verse 4 says, Looking not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. He could have said, never look to your own interests. It's not what he's saying. But it's just this life that not only observes the Sabbath principle of rest, but this life in humility that reaches out and cares for others. Humility in Hebrew in Philippians chapter 2 also tells us that have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Like, What does humility look like? Jesus has shown us what humility looks like. It's service and it's obedience. Now, let's be clear. You and I, for a little bit, can just like, I'm going to be a servant. And I'm going to be obedient. That actually could be the opposite of humility. I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it in my own strength. To show God that I'm worthy of love. Note. He's already told you you're worthy of love. He gave his only son. Died in your place. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to convince him of what he's already told you is a fact. You're loved. You're precious to him. He sent his son to die in your place. The command here. In clothing yourselves with humility. Is not just trying to muster it up and trying to produce all of these fruits. Humility is not the fruit itself. 
It's the attitude underneath that says, I trust you. I trust you, Jesus. I trust you with my life. I need you to do with me what you think is best. And then out of that full acceptance, you seek to serve. You seek to dream and to pray and to consider what does it look like to consider others better than myself. And we're going to imperfectly do it. But make sure we don't get second things first and first things second. Humility ultimately then is trusting God. Taking Him at His word. Convinced of His promises. How do you foster that humility? It says here, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud. He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I remember this quote by Pastor John Piper when he said, it was in one of his sermons on the Minor Prophets, he says, God will clog your way and frustrate your day in hopes that you will become wholly His. Why why sometimes does work just seem so difficult? Well, because this world is broken, right? (laughs) Sin is in the world. Suffering is going to come. But one potential answer especially if our mind doesn't go to Jesus throughout the day, one potential answer is those are some of the consequences of trying to live life on your own. Humility. Humility acknowledges, like, I can't do this. I can't do it on my own. And when you're halfway through the day and you realize, man, I have not even thought about Jesus today, then you're just like, Father, forgive me. I need your strength. Help me. And the beauty of the cross is like, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Like, this is when you go to the cross, not sit there and self-flog yourself. Like, I'm just such a horrible person. I'm rotten. This is when he says, what do you do with that sense of realization that I have been so in my own strength? I'm so weary in part right now because of my own doing. What do you do with that? He says, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Too many of us, when we have that realization that I've, I've been trying to do this on my own, we just beat ourselves up. We try to solve it ourselves. Friends, humility just considers the freeness of grace. It just considers the love of Christ for us. It considers the cross. And so, I invite you to trust Him. I invite you to trust Him. The God who raises the dead, I invite you to trust Him. Trust Him with the politics of the world. Trust Him with your work. Trust Him with your financial struggles. Trust Him with your fear of sickness. Trust Him with your family. What does it look like to trust Him? At minimum, it means to take all these things to Him in prayer. That's one thing that humility does. It just stops and it prays. Like, prayer is, I can't, you can. Like, that is humility. It's just like, God, help. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. God opposes the proud. He will clog you up so that you will then say, I can't. And set you free. And so he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Know that he's mighty. 
So at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Dear friends, walk in his love. Walk in the freeness of grace. When you're tempted to walk in self-condemnation, consider the cross. This passage is calling out for you to consider the chief shepherd. Think about what it means that you're accepted in Christ. Think about what it means that you've been justified by faith alone. Think about what it means that he has adopted you into his family and you will never be an orphan again. Think about what it means that you are being sanctified, like he is working inside of you right now to make you more and more like Jesus. Think about what it means that he is praying and interceding on your behalf right now. Think about the freeness of his grace. You did nothing to earn that. You can only fall into his arms and say, Father, please give it. Humility is a receiving of all of the wonderful promises that Christ has for you. Dear friends, clothe yourselves, all of us, with humility. So at the proper time, he may exalt us. May we cast our cares upon him because he cares for you and I. Let's pray. Father, I ask that in this moment you would genuinely help us, encourage us, strengthen us, protect us, from the pride of self-sufficiency and drive us to the beauty of your loving care for us. Father, when my mind goes into neutral, you know it does, when my mind goes into neutral, I'm tempted to get depressed or anxious. I'm tempted to focus on my performance or the lack thereof. And Father, I just ask, that you would make us aware of that excessive self-focus and that we would cast everything at your feet. And that, Father, we would do the hard work, the intentional work of clothing ourselves with humility, beginning in prayer, allowing your word to mold us and to shape us. Father, please, Do what only you can do. Make prideful people humble. We're prideful. We're dumb sheep. You're a beautiful chief shepherd. I pray that you would guide the leadership of this church. Guide us to be humble, to lead not under compulsion, but gladly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly for your glory not domineering or on a power trip, but exemplary. Father, as a church, may we be respectful of our leaders. May we be humble in our opinions. May we all be learners. May we be more like Christ so that we get to the end and we stay on mission to get you to people who don't know Christ. Father, guide us in these moments, I ask. In a spirit of prayer, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. There's a cup and bread underneath your seats. But I just want us to continue in a season of reflection right now. The Lord is at work in your life. I trust Him to be so. And so right now, I just want you to consider what you might need to cast at His feet, what you might need to take to Him in prayer. But just consider the freeness of His grace and consider His love for you in this moment. And then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Let's just have a time of reflection and then we'll take the Lord's Supper.